Jody Vance in for Jill this week. A very busy show lined up for you. And I want to dive right in with our first guest today. As you've been listening to The Mike Smith Show, you've been hearing leaders from around the globe react to last night's declaration of war on Ukraine by Russian President, excuse me, Vladimir Putin. Uh, We will get to all of the reaction again in this program to update you if you missed what uh, Mike was sharing and what Mornings with Simi had today. This has been an ongoing story, obviously, since the first missiles were unloaded on Ukraine uh, late last night, uh, early morning Ukraine time. Uh, But as mentioned, I want to get to the human side of this because we actually have um, someone from right here, uh, actually an assistant professor at the School of Public Administration at the University of Victoria. Tamara Krichenko is on the line with us. Tamara, thank you so much for doing this. I imagine this is an incredibly difficult time for you, as the reason we have you off the top of the show is your sister is fleeing Ukraine. Thank you for for being strong enough to to come on the radio with us to tell the story. Um, Thanks for having me. So how did this all unfold for you? I mean, you must feel incredibly far away, first and foremost. Yes, um... This started, um, Ukrainians have faced Russian imperialism for a very long time, and this grotesque chauvinism. And so in a sense, this is not new, because my family's history is of fighting against this imperialism and authoritarianism for, for decades, of course. Eight years ago, Ukrainians rose up against a regime that was a puppet government of the Kremlin because they just want to be free and live in a normal country. There was an attempt to crush that, and it was a failure because civil society in Ukraine is so robust. And since that time, the Russians have invaded, occupied, and levied a hybrid war and taken parts of of, uh, Ukraine along the east, which were claimed by Putin as a separatist movement. They were, in fact, not. They were led by a Russian KGB military commander named Igor uh, Girkin. So in a sense... We have seen this coming. Ukrainians and uh, Canadian Ukrainians uh, have been trying to raise alarm about this. And the language that Putin is using, let's be very clear, he is using a language of annihilating Ukrainians and their right to an existence. So I think that we need to be very clear about what is happening here and we need to fight it uh, wholeheartedly and, and show our support globally. And I'm seeing that happening, which makes me very happy. So Tamara, can I ask you this about what you're saying about Putin wanting to complete annihilation of Ukraine? Is Ukraine just simply in the way of him reaching further into the continental, uh, into the European continent? Or is it something about Ukraine that he feels entitled to as the president, as the dictator in Russia? He clearly feels entitled, but he also cannot have a successful democracy such as Ukraine on his doorstep. We kicked out, Ukrainians kicked out their kleptocratic elite who were servile to him. And he runs a kleptocracy, a state that has stolen billions from its people. Putin recently moved his $100 billion million yacht from Germany to, you know, to Russian waters to try and get out of sanctions. He cannot have a flood, you know, a democracy such as Ukraine um, in its space. It's a threat. And he has used a language of such grotesque imperialism that does not belong anywhere in this century. And we see authoritarianism, we recognize it, and we have to, as a global community, 
to do everything we can to stop this. We're with Tamara Krachenko, Assistant Professor, School of Public Administration at the University of Victoria. Now, Tamara, can you tell me about your sister? Where is she now? My sister lives in Kyiv with her family, and they were awakened in the early morning by missiles hitting Ukrainian military targets outside of the city and near the city. At this point, we're seeing that the Russians are actually bombing hospitals, a disgusting act. The bombing is becoming so strong, um, they have decided to try and flee to find safe haven in a part of western Ukraine that doesn't have such intensive killing. Ukrainians have nerves of steel. They have been dealing with Russian aggression for a very long time. And um, and so I, 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 call to, I call to your listeners to understand and that Ukrainians are motivated, they're on their land, it's their home, they have a strong army that is quite professional, and they are going to fight this. So don't give up on Ukraine. They are fighting and they will fight. There's a reason why Stand With Ukraine is something on the lips of so many, both here in Canada and abroad. Uh, certainly, Tamara, there are people wondering if what sanctions and moves that have been made by the global community, by the leaders of the West, if you will, uh, do you believe that it's enough? Do you believe that that the people of Ukraine are being supported in this time of attack? I see support. I also see that there are groups like Germany and Italy that are advocating against certain things that would be useful. So we need to have Russia blocked from SWIFT. We need to ban all state-owned Russian propaganda channels like Russia Today in Western countries. They have no place on our channels. You're just amplifying genocidal messages. Russia should not be on the UN Security Council. They have no place. It is an absolute farce that they are the chair. The Russian Duma, oligarchs, and so on absolutely should be sanctioned. Those sanctions should be strengthened, and they should include their family members because that is how how they hide the wealth that they have stolen from their own people. And we also need much more and stronger sanctions against their economy. And I would like to express also solidarity to all oppressed peoples, including Russian peoples who today, some of them are very, very bravely protesting and there's a crackdown on them and they too are being arrested. So this is, you know, global solidarity for oppressed peoples. It's a really important point. That That's a very important point, Tamara. This is not the people of Russia attacking the people of Ukraine. This is very much a political move, as you said right off the top. It's like that, that you, you phrased it so beautifully in, in the ugliness of what it truly is, that grotesque chauvinism at play here that is just, it's like masters of the game at a chessboard, not thinking of the, the people that will suffer at the hand of this and certainly watching Russian people trying to protest anti-war protests and being arrested in doing so. It, it's quite something to see um, those around the world standing with Ukraine and, and the people of Ukraine wanting to help here. And, and, and interesting last night watching, I actually watched on Al Jazeera English, the, uh, the UN ambassador to Ukraine literally talk down the ambassador to Russia in the moment, holding up his phone saying, is now the time I show you the video of your president declaring war. How much of a political game do you uh, witness here? Because it's been a slow walk to this. I mean, hundreds of thousands of troops and blood supply and mass units and tanks. I mean, this has been going on for a long time. The people of Ukraine must have been pointing and saying, hello, anyone? They've been 
facing a hybrid warfare, including cyber warfare, for eight years intensively. And there has not been enough attention. I'm very happy that the Americans took the lead on, on releasing the intelligence that they had to call the Russians out. No more pandering to their lies. Their leadership has no place at any global forum. They've shown themselves to be utterly imperialist in their ambitions, and they need to be frozen out. So no more listening to their lies and no more amplifying their messages. I think we have to see propaganda and really, really counter it in every single way. Indeed, that is uh, the virus that spreads in a way that uh, we've seen COVID-19 do. I want to stay in touch with you. I thank you very much, as I said, for your time. This must be incredibly difficult for you. When it comes to your sister fleeing, this is my last question. I know you have to run. When, you're la- when your sister is fleeing, is she, is she getting in a car, going to the border and hopeful that she can get into Poland or is she going to stay in Ukraine? Uh, she wants. She's Ukrainian. This is her land. She wants to stay. Yeah. Yeah. And and may God just bring peace because yeah, what future is there? Um, this is a country of 40 million people that has been astonishingly amazing in the face of Russian aggression, what they have built. I hope your callers can all visit Ukraine one day. It is an absolutely stunning country with an incredibly robust civil society, as you are seeing today and uh, an incredible um, culture. Thank you for bringing your personal story, Tamara. We appreciate you. Thank you for having me. All right, let's get some uh, scholarly advice here on what we're witnessing on the global scale with the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Professor in leadership at the Royal Military College, director of the Institute of Intergovernmental Relations, Queen's University, and senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. We welcome back to the show Christian Luprecht. Thank you so much for doing this. Good afternoon. My pleasure. Let's start unpacking this with the moment that we'll likely all remember where we were when we heard the words war again uh, for the first time since the end of World War II. Where are we politically with Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine? Uh, Vladimir Putin is effectively destroying the international rules-based order that we built after World War II precisely to avert international war, where the social contract was that we would not uh, resort to force, might, and coercion in order to change boundaries. And he's also effectively abrogating the European security architecture uh, that we built at the end of the Cold War um, that was meant to provide reassurance to both sides. So what we are left with is either a situation uh, after this is all done that is more akin to a Cold War environment where Russia abuts several NATO member countries, all of which would have been part of the former Soviet bloc, so the three Baltic states, Poland, Slovakia, and Romania, um, or a situation that is more akin to uh, the might-is-right world that we had before World War II, Uh, where countries try to assert their particular national interests by brute force. And we know that the world of the first half of the 20th century uh, cost uh, many Canadians had to pay for um, in in blood. Um, And we know that this is a world that uh, Canada has no interest in returning to, given the humanitarian, economic, political, social calamities that brought. 
And I think most Canadians would also not uh, prefer not to return to a Cold War scenario. The challenge that this all presents for Canada is that um, we need to be actively engaged in deterring Russian aggression, and we have very little to offer to that effect. The fact that we don't even have a fighter jet that can defeat Russian air defenses is the case in point. That is a big piece of this. And listening to our leaders, and we're going to have more in the program uh, with clips from the press briefing today from our Prime Minister, Dep- Deputy Prime Minister, Defence Minister. Uh, we There's a lot that Canada wishes we could do, both politically as well as militarily. But as you mentioned, we don't even have a fighter jet. But will our sanctions have bite as our Deputy Prime Minister, uh, Christia Freeland, our Finance Minister as well, Christia Freeland, said, as a Ukrainian-Canadian, it was quite something to hear her impassioned speech this morning. And yet it still feels like, what can we do? Will our, will our sanctions have impact? Well, so we will need to engage in a containment strategy um, on in terms of politics, economics, and military. Um, so to dissuade Russia from further adventurism, um, some of this um, is going to be controversial because some of the containment strategy will mean that there will be European allies that will have to procure their natural gas from elsewhere. That means, for instance, through liquid gas exports, as we know, those pipelines, so the the, um, uh, the 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 coastal gas link pipeline, Alberta and British Columbia, um, as well as the prospect even of debating a natural gas a pipeline to the east coast from which it would be efficient to export uh, liquefied natural gas to European allies are highly controversial in this country. And so we mm-hmm. need to have an honest debate about um, the fact that people who effectively oppose those pipelines are implicitly condoning the behavior uh, and the aggression by Russia. And so I think uh, we'll need to start linking some of the political debates that we have in this country and explain to Canadians that there are strategic repercussions to the decisions that we make that appear to be purely domestic politics, uh, but that now mean that we are not in a position to support our European allies, which have effectively been putting money into Russian military coffers by virtue of buying Russian military gas. So one of the better ways that we can contain Russia is making sure it doesn't have the money to pay for these types of military adventures. So uh, it's nice for the government of Canada to say we're going to do more in terms of deterrence and we're going to have sanctions. But really, in the large scheme of things, Canada's relations, economic, political and military with Russia are relatively limited. Um, And I still don't see the government doing much about some of the kleptocratic Russian organized crime and oligarch money uh, that is swaffling uh, around in real estate in some Canadian markets, including Toronto, uh, where perhaps we could take at least a bit of a cue out of the UK rulebook that is trying to now finally become more aggressive on some of uh, uh, the wealthy Russian elite that has been hiding their dirty money in Canada and which is then enabled for some nefarious purposes. Right. So a handful of sanctions by Canada and a hundred sanctions by uh, the government in the UK. I could speak with you on this topic probably for a couple of hours. What you said about the pipeline to the east alone, Western countries coming together to fund one another and give resources to one another to cut off that money train into the countries who would declare war is a really big piece of this. Thank you for taking some time out of what I imagine is a very busy day for you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for the conversation.
That was audio from a demonstration that took place yesterday at Vancouver City Hall. The Ukrainian community here in the Lower Mainland certainly uh, feeling the concern and the worry as the very fluid situation continues to unfold in their home country. We want to bring in Pastor and Holy Eucharist, Ukrainian Catholic Cathedral in New Westminster. Father Mikhailo Ozorovich joins us on the line. Thank you for being here, Father. Of course, thank you so much for covering this uh, such important and devastating, unfortunately, event uh, for us and for the whole world. It, it is really for you and for the whole world. It has unnerved the entire West and woken up the West to something that you and those born and raised in Ukraine call Ukraine home and are proudly Ukrainian have been feeling for a, a long, long time. Our first guest on the show today, Tamara, was talking about how this battle is, is a decade long or more, but certainly intensely for the last decade. What changed last night at the UN uh, General Assembly for you? Well, everything, uh, it, it took a whole different level, uh, the whole war and the, the scale of it. So for me, it was very close to home, literally. Uh, last night, uh, a, a ballistic rocket hit five kilometers from my parents' homes. And my city is a thousand kilometers from Russian border. So very far. And I never thought that this would happen. And so as I was really, you know, awoken by the by, by the sheer amount of troops and military and artillery involved in this and across Ukraine. So not just in eastern Ukraine, not just Crimea, not just, uh, you know, Belarus, but everywhere they've, they've hit uh, infrastructure, uh, critical infrastructure of Ukraine, uh, military bases across country, not just, you know, in neighboring uh, the, with Russia. And what's happening right now as we speak is devastating tanks and are rolling in through Ukraine. Uh, I just uh, just was on the phone with one business owner, Ukrainian business owner here in Vancouver, and, and her family is outside, uh, very close to where um, the nuclear plant of Chernobyl is, uh, that it was already officially taken by the Russians, and the tanks are rolling through their village, heading towards the capital. So it's not... Uh, and I think nobody could imagine could have imagined it. Uh, we we thought something bad could happen, but definitely not to the scale. And it affects the community here just incredibly. You know, I've been on the phone and here right now. Currently, I'm in front of the art gallery here in Vancouver with hundreds of people, uh, Russian and non-Russian. So what's different between this even an example here? You know, it's not just Ukrainians standing for peace in Ukraine, but also Russians. They're just looking at a, at, a, at a beautiful young girl here holding a sign, I'm Russian and I'm against Russian invasion and war in Ukraine. Last night I got a text from my uh, Russian neighbor in U.S. Minister saying we are there praying for you, we are against what's happening. So um, this is very different than from anything that we've seen in the last uh, 30 years since Ukraine has been independent. 
We're with Father Mihailo Ozorovich, who is a pastor, a Holy Eucharist Ukrainian Catholic Cathedral in New Westminster. I'm born and raised in Ukraine. And Father, when it comes to what you were saying about your family, the distance your family is from the Russian-Ukraine border, you said a thousand kilometers away. Yeah, almost, and, yes. The whole different yeah, fight. Right. So give me an idea of what that conversation was like, if you don't mind, because it's astounding the 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 severity and the swiftness with which the Russians have have entered your home country. And and it must be shocking to your family. What what are they doing and and what do you advise them to do? Well, they are calming me down. (laughs) So, uh, you know, uh, exactly like you, you know, hearing that uh, airport in my city was hit. The ballistic missile and my parents live just you know outside the city, very close to the airport. It was like, well, how, you know, how far, how awful are they hurt? Are they there? You know, because you you know you hear that and you don't know what to imagine in your mind and in your heart. And then yeah. my parents are, yeah, it did happen. You know, six rockets were hitting our city. Uh, thankfully, uh, you know, nothing big. We we're staying staying put. We we're staying alert. But but no panic, no fear, no. Um, a real desperation. People, on one hand, are really ready right now to to respond to this aggression to their best ability. Right? It's still very hard to compare Russia and Ukraine in sheer number of people and military uh, ammunitions and 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 tanks and helicopters and planes, so forth. But uh, it was a tough conversation, right? And and hearing my dad say, you know, I'm willing to go into the local territorial defense unit and, and to protect it, and uh, and as a son, being okay with that, uh, and 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 you know, now I've been thinking. This is my last conversation with him just about two hours ago. You know, if it goes that way, even in further, like, how will I live with it? You know, what I, what, how what will I tell my children? You know, and I, right now, I would be pretty proud to be a son of a hero who was able to lay his life for for freedom, for peace, for values, and and. Uh, identity of, of, of Ukraine. Uh, yeah, so a tough, tough one. Very tough. But the, the caliber of character in the Ukraine people standing for their land and prepared to die for it in this way, in what seems from a Westerner's point of view, with I'm daughter of an immigrant, my grandfather born and raised, my mother born and raised in, in Yugoslavia, and, and having mm. to serve in a way and being being put in the position of having to stand before the global bully in this way. Needless bloodshed is what it feels like from the perspective of somebody watching Vladimir Putin doing this for what feels like no reason. Well, a caliber of people, and I think a Ukrainian nation only uh, just over 30, you know, celebrated 30th anniversary of its independence, but has yeah. grown uh, exponentially from, uh, and, and the identity and, uh, uh, you know, culture and level of education and uh, people's love for democracy and freedom has grown so much that uh, it only is natural uh, that this is the type of response we see from from people in Ukraine. Uh, if this was happening, you know, twenty five years ago, maybe it wouldn't be that way. But the the spirit is is so strong and so willing and, and so full of sacrifice and love towards those that they are protecting that it inspires inspires me here to be and and do everything I can 
to journey with, with people in, in Vancouver and stand united in solidarity with people in my motherland. In the face of adversity, you find out the fabric of a nation. And here you are sharing what is happening in Ukraine on the ground with your family. We send them our very best and all of our want for health and security. But also a reminder that you're at the art gallery right now. You said there are hundreds of people gathering there to stand with Ukraine. And what a beautiful reason to gather on a, on a sunny day in Vancouver than to just come together of all ethnicities, all walks of life and be a part of that solidarity. We really appreciate your time today, Father. Thank you for doing this. Thank you so much. And please pray for Ukraine, stand with Ukraine, and support Ukraine in any way uh, you can. We, we need you, and we appreciate it. Jody Vanson for Jill Bennett. Time to dive into the financial impacts, the market impacts that could be coming with this situation in Ukraine, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the sanctions that are being uh, thrown down by Western uh, countries, uh, by leaders across the globe. There are a lot of moving pieces and we need to do the math. And in order to do that math, we're going to bring in someone who knows all about the markets. You hear him all the time right here on CKNW. He is our CKNW financial analyst. Uh, Michael Levy is with us. Thanks for doing this, Michael. Pleasure. Absolutely a pleasure, Jody. So where do we begin here? We begin with the the pronouncement of war, the 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 thing that markets have been sort of teetering on the edge of with the gathering of troops and the building of, you know, mass units on the border of Ukraine by the Russian military and Putin saber rattling to the point of last night where he actually uh, did the deed and made the move that many perhaps thought he wouldn't do, that he was looking for uh, some way to just add pressure to the West and the leaders in the West. But certainly we've seen that that is not the case in these last number of hours. So how have the markets reacted, Michael? What have you seen? Well, it was absolutely a seesaw. It was just unbelievable. Uh, I happened to wake up about four o'clock in the morning. Don't ask me why. <laughs> but uh, I turned around, look at, looked at my uh, phone and saw the headline that uh, uh, Russia had, in fact, invaded. War was on. And then that took me to look at the markets. And the markets just reacted violently. Um, you had what we call futures. This is before the markets actually open in North America. They uh, trade, uh, but they don't actually trade at the, uh, as they do when they're open. But it gives indications, Jody, of what was going to happen. And at one time, as uh, we went through the futures and into the open at 6.30 this morning, and just after that, the Dow uh, was uh, down 859 points, the TSX down 275 points. So people bailing from the stock market and going to things like gold, which is a safe haven. Gold was up $68, and oil, oil was also up and uh, just went over $100 U.S. a barrel. Then everybody was sitting on tender hooks. The market was playing to the downside, not showing much or any kind of recovery, waiting to see what President Biden would have to say. And then the markets absolutely turned. So they liked what Biden had to say. 
they actually liked what Biden had to say, not because of the severity, Jody, of the sanctions that were going to be put on Russia, but the fact is, is the sanctions that were going to be put on by Biden and his administration was not going to affect the markets in North America or in Western Europe. The sanctions were not nearly uh, tough enough that they were going to impact negatively Europe and the European markets, and certainly not North American markets, because by the time the close came today at one o'clock, we had a complete turnaround, and from being down about 859 points during the day, the Dow closed up 90, and the TSX, after being down 275, closed higher by about 12 points, and gold, which was all the way up to $1,976 an ounce, uh, it came down about $81. Oil was really the, the, the narrowest trade because oil's been on a bull market or bull move up because of shortage of supply. So oil went over or to over $100 a barrel and finished up at about $93 a barrel. But it was a complete, uh, uh, as far as I'm concerned, it was uh, so volatile. And just to watch it and watch the impact of every announcement, watch the impact of traders trying to get out the door and selling, and then before the markets closed and the impact or lack of impact on the sanctions, all these traders trying to get back into the market. Wow. Roller coaster, seesaw. What a ride, a wild ride ride indeed. Michael Levy, CKNW financial analyst, I want to ask you about where we go from here. So this is the immediate impacts on the markets. And, you know, you know better than anyone that the last couple of years has been a wild ride, riding the Bronco of COVID-19 in markets. What traditionally happens when there is civil unrest or war? And and do we really even know the answer to that, given the fact that we haven't seen action like what Vladimir Putin is doing in Ukraine since 1945? Well, you, you haven't seen it since then. Uh, you know, I mean, if, if you want to call that kind of war, yes, we haven't. We, it's not really comparable. But the fact is that we have been in a what we would call a correction mode for a lot of January or, or for some of January and into February. Uh, the Dow Jones Industrial, which is the benchmark in the United States, um, Markets down about 10%. NASDAQ, which is where the high tech stocks, your Amazon's trade, uh, your Microsoft, uh, down about 20%. So there was this correction going on. The markets raced through 2021. They came back with a, just a fury, and uh, uh, those who were in the market did exceptionally well as markets recovered out of COVID and probably went a little bit too far. So into January, February. February, we had a normal correction. The other part of the puzzle is oil prices going up. With oil prices going up, the cost of doing business, Jody, goes up also. Inflation goes up. Uh, oil to move things, oil to run things. Um, the energy markets were moving to the upside, and that, put, that, that, that helped put a damper on markets. Where do we go from here? The people that I am reading, that I listen to, that I respect, are using any market downturn as a buying opportunity. And you could see that today. As soon as 
Biden's sanctions came in and they were non-impactful to markets, those who are going to use, were going to use the downturn as a buying opportunity and try and scoop some bargains did exactly that. So where are we going from here? If there's no more a global impact from Russia going into the Ukraine, but only rhetoric, then buyers are going to be looking to pick up bargains. There would have to be some kind of uh, an explosion, and I, I, I don't mean that literally, but there would have yeah. to be something very impactful happen uh, with Russia and the Ukraine to further dampen the markets. Okay, pardon my novice on this question, because I know there are a lot of people listening who know exactly what the answer to this question is, but some of us are a, a little bit novice when it comes to the difference between Wall Street and Main Street. And we heard that mentioned in uh, President Joe Biden's um, speech today in, in the Q&A period. He was asked about, you know, the different views of the market when it comes to Main Street and Wall Street. Can you give us a little bit of a Coles Notes version on what that reference means? Sure. What impacts the stock market uh, on a short or even a medium-term basis does not necessarily impact Main Street or you and me. And if the market goes up 500 points or down 500 points, we still go about our day. It has to be uh, a, a big, huge move. Even a move like this morning when we were down 800 points, there was nobody worried. There was nobody rushing into grocery stores or nobody trying to sell stuff and get out of the way. Main Street was not affected. This is what Biden wanted, was your average American not to be affected by the sanctions that were going on. So it didn't even, it, it didn't negatively affect uh, the Dow or, or, or the markets, and it didn't negatively affect Main Street, you or I. We are exactly the same as we were 24 hours ago. And who is not is Russian President Vladimir Putin, his oligarchs and his banks. How do these sanctions hit their markets? Uh, they, they will hit, but what, uh, what and, and this is going to be uh, a, a tiny bit complicated, but the way they, uh, they move money around the world, I'm talking corporations, governments, uh, uh, big banks, they use uh, a system called SWIFT, S-W-I-F-T, and that's the way Russia moves money also. Those who are hoping for harder sanctions would have liked to have seen Russia taken out of the SWIFT system so they would have great difficulty moving money money that they get in for uh selling their oil their natural gas money for export money for import they wanted to see that stopped as much as possible swift wasn't stopped that was a sigh of relief for russia and it impacted the uh it, it impacted the uh, the, the severity of what Biden was trying to do because he didn't go all in or didn't go all out or all in in order to get Russia to pull back, to stop, to take a breath, to offer to talk. That did not happen with the sanctions. Interesting. Okay, well, we'll be waiting to see if that might be something in the toolkit of the U.S. president moving forward in the hours and days ahead. Michael, thank you so much for doing this. Very eye-opening. Thanks, Jody. Jody Vanson for Jill this week. And we are continuing to talk about the reverberations, the impacts of the decision by Vladimir Putin, Russian President Vladimir Putin, attacking Ukraine, declaring war on Ukraine and making Europe unsettled. 
the post-rules-based international order has been disrupted on the continent. And that is going to impact all of us in one way or another, no matter how far from Ukraine we might be. Uh, In terms of people thinking about heading to Europe, this summer was likely where many of us wanted to go because it's been so long since we've felt that travel was, you know, non-essential and just a vacation. We were getting back there with COVID uh, lifting measures uh, across the globe. But now there's that added layer of worry. I want to bring in Claire Newell. You know her, you love her, president of Travel Best Bets. And Claire, of course, we want to get into the travel piece of this puzzle. But first, how's your boy? How's your son? He's in Helsinki. Yeah, Jody, he is. He's in Helsinki, Finland on a university exchange. For those who know geography, you'll know how close that is. Uh, as a family, we actually visited that area. We actually did, uh, Scandinavia and Russia cruise visiting St. Petersburg. So he's been in that area. And I, I had a chat with him this morning and I just said, you know, how are you feeling? I mean, it's all they can talk about at the moment. Yeah. He's been visiting friends all over. He was in Copenhagen, uh, just a couple of days ago before that Budapest. And he, he said it's just top of mind. He feels safe at the moment, but we had a chat because he had planned after he's done his exams to spend three or four weeks traveling before heading back. I feel like it's, you know, an important part of growing up. And so we've decided as a family that he'll focus more on Western Europe. Mm -hmm. He had planned to do a little bit more um, in the area he's in. He was hoping he would get back to St. Petersburg. So if you've been there, you know how gorgeous it is. Um, but this, of course, now takes it off of his agenda. And I think that for many people, uh, this is going to change how they look to traveling to Europe. Uh, you know, it's obviously enormous. And there are places that people are already booked for, like Greece and Italy and France and the UK. We haven't had any calls today, Jody, on people looking at changing that. Um, There will be some people who are booked on, say, land tours that go actually into Russia, you know, that do part of the Baltic states in Russia. We had other people who were booked to Scandinavia and Russia on on cruises. You know, this all depends how long this goes on. And God help us that it goes, you know, that it ends quickly. It's just such so unsettling. Um, But, you know, of course, it's going to have an impact. Some people won't even want to go to anywhere in Europe let alone close to that area. Yeah, and that's a piece of this that, you know, when you, we've talked about this before, but so important to really in this day and age, in 2022, post-COVID, and now with unrest and, in fact, war in Ukraine, best to have someone like yourself to be booking your travel through so that if you need assistance or you need that insurance or you need to understand what happens if everything changes on a dime, how to get back home if you need to. That's so key here. Yeah, it's a it's an important part of, of planning travel in today's day and age. And so sad that it is. Um, yeah. But the reality is, is that I want my I want to know exactly where my son is going to be. And it would be the same thing if I was planning a trip. I would want to know uh, that there was a destination representative that was actually on the ground where I was going. So I would typically be booking with a package that had local representation or a cruise company or a tour company that actually, the last thing that anyone in the travel business wants is to put any of their customers in harm's way. So when you're dealing with large companies that are doing with destination reps or guides with you, 
they will navigate it all for you, protect you. You won't go close. They'll change the itinerary a bit. You'll still have an amazing time, um, but it takes away some of that worry. If you understand what I'm saying, it just, I do. I understand. Yeah. And I also do love your advice, Claire, if I may, with Claire Newell, the president of Travel Best Bats. When you uh, just give people the, the 101 on travel, like before you leave, you should register. Before you leave, you should check. Can you reiterate those websites, those resources yeah. that are so very important? Of course, you know, we've been telling people, make sure you know what the regulations are for COVID. And that's, we've been advising people to go and do a Google search for Sherpa travel and figure all of that out. But going back to pre-pandemic, one of the things I sounded like a broken record on was exactly the website that, um, where you, we talked about registering. What that is, is letting the Canadian government know where you are, that you're out of the country, how long you're going for and how to contact you. And you can do that on the government's website, travel dot gc.ca and if you'll remember pre-covid jody there were oftentimes i would have three or four trips on my agenda and they would all have been registered separately and so i really recommend people do that it is so important travel.gc.ca it is the equivalent of going for a hike in the north shore mountains and just leaving a note on the dashboard <laughs> of your car saying where you're headed so that if something goes awry people can come and help you back. Claire always such a great resource for us and send your son our best. I watched you, you. Uh, do the travel in that area. So beautiful, so exciting. And I know as a mom, you must be really worried. So I'm sending you a big hug. Thanks, Jody. I really Cheers. appreciate it. <laughs> Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett this week, and uh, this has been an incredibly busy news day. And I want to keep you up to speed on all things happening on the Ukraine or on Ukraine, excuse me, and the Russian invasion of Ukraine that happened late last night, wee hours of the morning Ukraine time. A lot of people talking about how they woke up to this news today, and certainly it was a big moment when U.S. President Joe Biden stepped up to the podium and addressed the nation and the world, in fact, on what had transpired. And particularly, some of the threats that were barely veiled when Russian President Vladimir Putin addressed the media last night or was on Russian state TV last night uh, to declare war on Ukraine. He mentioned no Western intervention. I'm paraphrasing here, but the the translation from Russian was pretty clear. Do not step in or you will suffer the consequences that as the likes that you've never seen before. Here is U.S. President Joe Biden today addressing that next level threat from Vladimir Putin. I have no idea what he's threatening. I know what he has done, number one. And number two, no one expected the sanctions to prevent anything from happening. It has to show, this is going to take time, and we have to show resolve so he knows what's coming. And so the people of Russia know what he's brought on them. That's what this is all about. This is going to take time. It's not going to occur. He's going to say, oh, my God, these sanctions are coming. I'm going to stand down. He's going to test the resolve of the West to see if we stay together. And we will. We will. And it will impose significant costs on him. So what is the reaction to that in the United States and around the world? Let's go to the U.S. Capitol and connect with Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, busy, another busy news day uh, in the Capitol. Thank you for taking some time out for us here. Good afternoon. What did you hear there from U.S. President Joe Biden after what was an extraordinarily tense number of hours uh, in Ukraine? 
I mean, look, there there is a strong condemnation coming from uh, the administration, uh, coming from the president himself, uh, based on the overt military operation that is taking place across uh, Ukraine. Uh, something that you know the West uh, used intelligence to show was going to happen, uh, and and is actively watching uh, play out right now. I think what we're hearing from uh, from from the president and from the administration is that there are t- uh, there are uh, pressure tactics that can be used to try and push uh, Vladimir Putin back from the edge, an edge that he's pretty much already stepped over based uh, on what we're seeing uh, uh, on the ground right now. And Reggie, you heard U.S. President Joe Biden there announcing additional sanction will be placed on Russia and the Russian government. A, a movie claimed will not be instant and take some time. How serious are they? And, and is it going to work as a deterrent? Well, I mean, look, that's a, that's a big question that uh, that has remained open for the last uh, number of hours since we saw sanctions be levied by not just the United States, but members of the European Union, uh, along with NATO and the sanctions that were announced by Ottawa earlier today. Uh, I think it's important when we hear Joe Biden say that this is not going to be an immediate solution. It is likely not going to be something uh, that, that uh, makes an impact on the decision-making process, whether it's in the Kremlin or whether it's in the mind uh, of Vladimir Putin, noting that these are going to have long-term uh, economic impacts uh, on Russia. Uh, you know, the side note being Russia is a very rich nation, uh, so it may take uh, a much longer time for these kind of financial impacts to be felt across the broader uh, Russian public. Uh, but they are quite severe. I mean, these target some of the biggest uh, and the biggest state-owned banks across Russia. Some of them hold, uh, you know, nearly a quarter trillion dollars uh, worth of assets. So cutting that off from uh, the financial market, cutting Russia off from the Western technology market, making it more difficult for the Russian military to be able to collect assets uh, like lasers or weaponry or semi-chip conductors, this could pose problems down the road uh, when it comes to uh, trying to keep the military offensive going. But Russia is very rich. It does have the financial backing of itself to, to continue going forward. And when President Biden was in the question answer period of his press briefing, there was that question about China and whether or not the U.S. is in talks with China to put pressure on Russia from the other side of their country. And and Biden was was a little bit coy. I don't know if that's the right word, but he basically said, I'm not prepared to talk about that right now. What did you read into that? Well, I think you have to read a little further uh, in, into the headlines that, that we didn't see come out of Beijing, uh, and that was a condemnation uh, of the activity that is underway uh, in Ukraine or a condemnation uh, of the efforts that have been undertaken by the Russian government and by the Russian president. If you're not seeing that kind of condemnation come from uh, the Chinese president, uh, the Chinese delegation, the Chinese government, uh, then it does make it hard to to kind of grab onto the fact that maybe they're talking to the United States to levy some kind of economic sanction. Uh, on Russia. We have to remember this fits into that narrative that Joe Biden's been talking about for the last 400 days where the world is, uh, you know, this democracy up against autocracies. Uh, But there are also geopolitical decisions that are likely factoring into this right now. Namely, there is a massive multi, multi multi-billion dollar oil project and energy project that was signed between Moscow and Beijing not all that long ago to bring oil uh, through a Siberian pipeline into China, uh, which is the second or third largest subscriber uh, or customer uh, for Russian energy. So it's hard to see how China is going to jump in immediately and push back uh, on a government that it is so reliant on when it comes to energy. And it would seem, I mean, you would, in looking at sort of the world order in this moment, that 
China with the issues that that country has had with the U.S., with the West for that matter, and the want to disrupt it, that is pretty much what it appears that the Russian president is attempting to do in disrupting the West and cause issues uh, and and sort of upend the post rules-based international order that is very much a big part of the conversation right now. That's been a big threat, uh, not just for the United States uh, and not just for the neighboring nations uh, of Ukraine, but for uh, the entire European bloc that for the last several decades has worked aggressively to build a bond to push back on uh, a Russian encroachment or an attempt to to kind of pull down uh, the Iron Curtain that's been lifted for so long. We heard Volodymyr Zelensky, the Rus- the Ukrainian president, not all that long ago today, uh, say that he feels like there is an Iron Curtain that is trying to be uh, drawn again uh, to 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 keep Russian influence through Russian uh, and former Soviet states um you know, to itself. Uh, and there is a fear here amongst NATO uh, that this could this could escalate. And the questions do remain. Does this remain in uh, in Ukraine? Is there some form of pressure campaign, maybe not militaristic, but is there some form of Russian pressure campaign on former Soviet states to try and reassert that pressure or influence to draw them back into, um, you know, a history that simply doesn't exist anymore? These are legitimate and genuine fears across Europe. Jody Vanson for Jill Bennett, continuing our conversation with Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent. The reverberations of war being declared uh, by the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, on Ukraine, being called flagrant violation of international law to unilaterally create two new Russian republics in, in the first heartbeat of the attacks, and yet without provocation, without necessity, as mentioned, this premeditated attack with more than 175,000 troops, blood supplies, Reggie, field hospitals built, and now hearing that that the, the move into Ukraine from three different flanks has really penetrated that country, which is not a small country. It's one of the biggest, if not the biggest country on the European continent, uh, to have... Um, the Russians so deep within Ukraine. What what are the up to the minute um, news bits right now on that? Yeah, I mean, look, Ukraine is the second largest country in Europe, uh, land-wise, second only to Russia. Uh, and you're right to have 175,000 troops uh, postured around the country for weeks, if not months, uh, on some Kremlin word that they would not invade. Uh, you know, there there was ample warning here that something was going to go wrong. That was only fed further uh, in recent days when we saw in Belarus that Russian troops were going to remain on the ground, that military drills were going to increase. Uh, we've seen and heard uh, reports of missile launches coming out of Belarusian territory, uh, and the Belarusian uh, military has been put on standby by their president uh, to be called upon by the Kremlin. So this could ultimately become a multi-nation invasion uh, into Ukraine. Uh, this, remember, was supposed to be uh, protecting the interests of rebel-backed, or Russian-backed, rebel-held territory in the east that has now spread uh, to a wide swath of the country through most of the major centers targeting military bases. The Russian, uh, the, the Ukrainian military is not nearly as big uh, as Russia's, but they have been able to make gains. They were able to push back and reclaim control uh, of a key airbase just south and east uh, of Kiev. So they are making some gains. But, you know, this is just several hours in uh, and, and they ultimately are outnumbered both by men, by weaponry and by finances. So it really is unclear how far this is going to go. And it's obviously a crystal ball moment, but... 
on the ground in D.C., what do the politicians, what might the president of the United States be looking at as the end game here for Putin? It's unclear. Uh, President Putin keeps his cards close to his chest. He, he he oftentimes won't tell his own top senior advisors what his next moves are because there is uh, sometimes a trust factor here. So, you know, you have to take the Kremlin at its word with, you know, a, a tablespoon of salt to figure out what is going to be next. This is a this is a Russian dictator who was talking about uh, Ukraine not really being its own sovereign nation, it being an accidental right. nation because of, you know, imp- improper actions when the way that the USSR collapsed. Uh, saying that it's it's simply a puppet regime with a western uh you know western nations uh controlling it it, it it's it's unclear where where vladimir putin is trying to go with this ultimately with this military um operation moving forward if the if the if the goal here for Putin is to overthrow the government and take control of the country while at the same time decimating it in uh, a military operation while he's being sanctioned economically, this is going to create problems for him to inherit uh, a blown apart country that he may not be able to fix. So, you know, whether this is simply to just reassert Russian influence or regain control over something, um, the end game is simply unknown. And what comes after sanctions from the U.S. point of view? I mean, sitting, as Biden said, it, it's going to take some patience here to see these sanctions starve Russia in ways that will be untenable for those who have made this decision to attack Ukraine. What, how long do you, is it anticipated the West might wait before stepping in in a military way? Or do that's they at the all? Thing. Well, that's yeah. the thing. The, the U.S. is not going to step in in a military role. Number one, Ukraine is not uh, a NATO nation. They have no right. obligation right. to put a military on the ground there. Number two, there's no appetite politically in the United States to get involved in a war that does not directly include uh, the United States uh, at all. So, you know, how long do, do Western leaders wait? That that may be the problem here and that they're only able to sit and watch Ukraine continue to fall into the uh, into the hands uh, of the Kremlin uh, because they are only there to protect NATO. Assets. If this spills outside the borders, if this moves into NATO territory, that's going to be a different um, that's going to be a different can of worms because there will be obligations that need to be upheld by NATO members. For now, it is simply a matter of providing logistics and finances and military and whatever training is is possible to the Ukrainian military and government. Right. Territorial integrity is huge here. And we're all going to get the Western world is going to get a crash course on NATO and G7. What internally in the United States in terms of how well, most everything has been politicized in the United States. You've been covering it for years and years now. Um, But seeing um, the Republicans and the Democrats go head to head over Russia seems really odd. Yeah, I mean, look, Republican reactions are pretty varied, um, both uh, on the Capitol and on the campaign trail leading up to the midterms uh, this year. And it really goes to show that there is still a fragmented part of the Republican Party standing underneath uh, Donald Trump. Within the last day, Donald Trump has called the moves uh, by Vladimir Putin savvy. Uh, there is polling that shows that uh, uh, less than 10 percent of Republicans actually view Russia or uh, Vladimir Putin as an enemy or threat to the United States. Uh, and, and there is... You know, many of them are still kind of circumspect to any kind of military activity uh, in Europe. And that really speaks volumes to some members of the Republican Party still viewing NATO the way that Donald Trump did uh, as a burden towards America, as a financial burden towards America. So while Republicans want to see something done, they're critical of the Biden administration saying that he moved too slowly on this. But at the same time, that same party is saying, well, maybe we should just step back and do absolutely nothing, which again creates a jitter uh, amongst NATO allies.
Who's got the most at stake here in terms of politically speaking? Is it the UK? Is it Germany? Is it who are the most powerful to come at Vladimir Putin? Is it that is it that pipeline that runs into Germany that could be cut off that could really starve the coffers of Putin and his Russian oligarchs? I mean, look, ultimately, Russia will have the most to lose here uh, if the world continues to sanction them and makes this, um, you know, makes this a pariah nation. Uh, and whether or not at the end of all of this, Vladimir Putin is deemed a war criminal, Russia will be on the losing end. Until then, uh, you know, there have been concerns that uh, that the average person in the West is going to be on the losing end, especially when it comes to the cost of energy. Germany will pay the price uh, over Nord Stream 2. There are some nations that will pay the price because of limited uh, abilities to deal with Russia when it comes to uh, economic finance. Financial uh, transactions. So, you know, it's 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 a difficult process for these countries to move forward with understanding that there is a cost to democracy. But most leaders have stood up to say that in the name of democracy and in the name of protecting rules based order, the world needs to stand up and say, we will take this right now for a better tomorrow. You know what, Reggie? I'm so glad we had the opportunity to talk. And I thank you for all your hard work. I know you've worked probably 24 hours straight here. Thank you for doing this. Thank you.